0: Frontier AI models, what does it take to train and deploy them? How difficult is it to fast follow? And what are the prospects for China into the medium term to be able to um, catch up and maybe one day surpass the likes of uh, Anthropic, Google, and OpenAI? To discuss, I have on the podcast that I have per- I perhaps learned the most engineering from over the past 12 months, um, the Latent Space crew, Alessio, who um, runs a venture firm called Decibel. And Sean, who runs a firm called Small AI, they both are celebrating their one year anniversary, hosting um, the leading podcast for AI engineers, a new discipline of sorts that we'll be getting into over the course of this hour. Uh, Sean Alessio, welcome to China Talk. So let's start off by talking through the ingredients um, that are necessary to train a frontier model.
1: Yeah, um, at the very, very basic level, um, you need data and you need GPUs. Um, You also need talented people to operate them.
0: Let's do the most basic. Let's go from like easy to complicated. So say all I want to do is take what's open source and maybe like tweak it a little bit for my particular um, firm or use case or language or what have you. What's involved in... um, and sort of riding on the coattails of Llama and Co.
1: Yeah, uh, I would say like the, the leading open source models are Llama and Mistral, um, and both of them are very popular basis for um, creating like a leading open source model. Um, it, this would not make you a frontier model as it's typically uh, defined, but it, it can make you lead in terms of the open source benchmarks, right? So typically what you would need is you need some understanding of how to, how to fine tune those open source models. Those are readily available. Even the, the mixture of experts models are readily available. Um, and then some kind of fine-tuned data set, whether it's synthetic data sets or data sets that you've collected from some proprietary source somewhere. And um, I, I think that's, like, that's definitely the way that you start.
2: I would say, yeah, the biggest thing about Frontier is like, what's the frontier you're trying to conquer? So OpenAI, DeepMind, these are all labs that are working towards kind of AGI, I would say, as the end goal. is like one model that does everything really well and it's amazing at all these different things and kind of gets closer and closer to human intelligence. I would say the open source world so far has more been about the GPU pores, you know? So if you don't have a lot of GPUs, but you still want to get business value from AI, what can you do to do that? That's a whole different set of problems than getting to AGI. A lot of times it's cheaper to solve those problems because you don't need a lot of GPUs. Sometimes you need maybe data that is like very unique to a specific domain, or you might need a different product wrapper around the AI model that the larger labs are not interested in building. Um, So yeah, that's really how the market is bifurcating right now. So the open source world has been really great at helping companies taking some of these models that are not as capable as GPT-4, but in a very narrow domain with very specific and unique data to yourself, you can make them better. Um, so yeah, I would say data is definitely at the core of it now that the if you think about Llama and Mistral as like um uh GPU donation to the public, like these models have been trained by Meta and by Mistral. So now you don't have to spend the, you know, twenty million dollars of GPU compute to do it. You can only spend thousand dollars on together or on mosaic ml to do fine tuning so all of a sudden the the math really changes but so the data is important but if you want to build a model better than GPT 4 you need a lot of money you need a lot of compute you need a lot of data you need a lot of smart people you need a lot of everything so that's yeah. a that's a much harder task
0: so one of the ways i've like thought about conceptualizing the chinese predicament maybe not today but in you know perhaps 2026, 2027 is like a nation of GPU pores where, you know, if the export controls end up playing out the way that, uh, the Biden administration hopes they do, then, you know, you may, you may channel an entire, an entire country and, you know, multiple, you know, enormous, uh, billion dollar startups and firms into going down these development paths, which, um, you know, are kind of, uh, you know not necessarily the 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 sexiest from a you know creating god perspective but may end up continuing to only lag a few months or years behind um uh behind what's happening in uh in the leading western lab. so a few questions that sort of follow out over that do you guys have a you know what are the sort of like mental models or frameworks that you use to think about what the gap between what's available in open source plus fine tuning as opposed to what the leading labs will come out. What is sort of like driving that gap and how you may expect that to play out over time?
1: Yeah, the the sad thing is as time passes, we know less and less about what the big labs are doing because they don't tell us at all. Like we don't know the size of GPT 4 even today. Uh, We we have some rumors and hints as to uh, the architecture just because people talk. And, you know, uh, one of our podcast's early claim to fame was having george hotz on where he leaked the gpt4 uh mixture of experts details but um it's very hard to compare you know gemini versus gpt4 versus claude just because we don't know the architecture of any of those things um and uh it's all it's all sort of closed-door research now as as these things become more and more valuable uh that said um i do think that the large labs are all pursuing like step change differences in model architecture that are going to really make a difference, whereas the GPU pores are typically pursuing more incremental changes based on techniques that are kind of known to work that would um, that would improve the 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 sort of state of the art open source models, um, you know, a, a moderate amount. Um, to date, even though GPT four finished training in August twenty twenty two um there is still no open source model that that even comes close to the original gpt4 much less the november 6 gpt4 turbo that was released um, that is even better than gpt4 um so um you know the closed models are well well ahead of the open source models um and the, the gap is widening we can talk about speculations about what the big model labs are doing we can also talk about what some of the chinese companies are doing as well which are Pretty interesting from my point of view, um, but those are those seem more incremental versus what the big labs are likely to do in terms of like the, the big leaps in AI progress that we're gonna likely to see this year.
2: Yeah, and I think the other the other big thing about open source is like retaining momentum. So a lot of open source model, a lot of open source work is kind of like things that you can get out quickly that get interest and get more people looped into contributing to them, versus a lot of the labs do work that is maybe less applicable in the short term that hopefully turns into a breakthrough later on. So you kind of have different incentives and therefore it's going to be hard to get open source to build a better model than GPT-4 just because like there's so many things that go into it that you can only figure out if you take a long time just experimenting and trying out.
0: This idea of sort of architecture innovation um, in a world in which people don't publish their findings uh, is a really interesting one and I think Sort of, you know, one of the key questions is you know, to what extent that knowledge will end up, uh, you know, staying secret, both at a sort of, uh, you know, Western firm competition level, as well as, a, as well as a China versus the rest of the world's labs level. So I'm curious sort of before we go into the, um, the architectures themselves, how, how does the knowledge of what the frontier labs are doing, even though they're not um, publishing? uh their results end up kind of like leaking out into the into the broader ether.
1: Yeah, honestly just San Francisco parties um <laughs> people just get together and talk cuz they like went to school together or they work together. Um OpenAI does layoffs. I don't know if people know know that. Um they just did a fairly big one in January where uh, some some people left. And so like just through that natural attrition like people leave all the time. People, you know, um whether it's whether it's by choice or not by choice. Um and and then they talk. They 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 do take knowledge with them. And, you know, California is a non-compete state. So um, you know, you, you, you can't violate IP, but you can you can take with you the, the knowledge that you gained uh, working at a company. So that does diffuse knowledge quite a bit between all the big labs, between Google, OpenAI, and whatever. Um and so like I, I expect expect like, that is informally how things diffuse um you know for more formally people do publish some papers like open ai has uh provided some detail on like dolly 3 and gpt4 vision that was surprising because like you know that's they're not they're not anywhere as open on the on the language model stuff um DeepMind continues to publish quite a lot of papers on everything that they do except they don't publish the models so you can't really try them out um and so like you know, you can go down the list in terms of like, Anthropic publishes a lot of interpretability research, but nothing on Claude. Um, so like, you can just kind of go down the list and um, bet on the diffusion of knowledge through humans, <laughs> just natural attrition. Um, but I I do think like there there's a fair amount of like discussion. Uh, you can see these ideas pop up in open source where they try to, you know, if people hear about a good idea, they try to sort of whitewash it and then you know, brand it as their own. Particularly some of the uh, there was a there's very a prominent example with Upstage AI last uh, last December, um, where they took a, an idea that had kind of been in the air, applied their own name on it, and then published their own paper, uh, you know, claiming that idea is their own. Uh, and there was a little bit of a hoo-ha around, like, you know, attribution and stuff. Um, but basically, like, if an idea is valuable, it'll find its way out just because everyone's going to be talking about it in in that really small community. Um, and sometimes it, it will be in its original form, and sometimes it'll be in, like, a new, a, a different new form.
0: Is just the knowledge that this is a direction to explore like broadly enough to get you most of the way there or w- where does the kind of know-how and the experience of actually having worked on these models in the past really, um, you know, play into you being able to unlock the benefits of whatever ar- architectural innovation is um, is coming down the pipeline or seems promising within one of the the major labs?
2: I would say a lot and also... When we talk about some of these innovations, it's like you need to actually have a model running. So if you think about mixture of experts, right? Um, if you look at the Mistral mixture of experts model, which is eight 7 billion parameters heads, you need about 80 gigabytes of VRAM to run it, which is, you know, the largest H100 uh, there. If you're trying to do that on GPT 4 which is a 220 billion heads, you need like 3.5 terabytes of VRAM, which is like 43 H100s. So right now you need people that are algorithm experts, but then you also need people that are system engineering experts. You need people that are hardware experts to actually run these clusters. So it's really (laughs) the know-how it's across a lot of things. So you might even have people leaving OpenAI that have unique ideas, but don't actually have the rest of the stack to help them put into use, you know, because they cannot actually get some of these clusters to run at at the scale. the other example that you can think of is, so Anthropic, the founders of Anthropic used to work at OpenAI. And if you look at Claude, I would say Claude is definitely on GPT 3.5 level as far as performance, but they couldn't get to GPT-4. So there's already a gap there and they hadn't been away from OpenAI for that long before. So like these learnings is like really quick versus if you look at Mistral, the Mistral team came out of Meta and there were some of the authors on the Lama paper. Their model is better than LLAMA on a parameter-by-parameter parameter basis. So they had, obviously, some unique knowledge to themselves that they brought with them. So it's kind of on a case-to-case basis, depending on where your impact was at the previous firm.
0: Um, so, you know, this is the big question, right? Is, like, say a state actor hacks the GPT-4 weights and gets to read all of OpenAI's emails for a few months. Like... It, is that all you need or is there also kind of or, or to what extent is there also sort of like tacit knowledge and the architecture already running and this that and the other thing um in order to be able to run as fast as them
1: oh yeah for sure a bunch of uh, architecture that's encoded in there that's not going to be in the emails uh yeah depends what degree of opponent you're assuming um if you're just if you're just talking about um weights you know weights obviously you can publish uh, right away. Um, um, just weights alone don't doesn't do it. You have to have the code that, that matches it up, and sometimes you can reconstruct it from the weight, sometimes you cannot. Um, but let's just assume that you can, you know, steal GPT four right away. Um, then you, you're going to the level of communication. Then you're going to the level of tacit knowledge and uh, infrastructure that is running. Um, and I do think that uh, the level of infrastructure for training like uh, extremely large models, um, like we're likely to be talking trillion parameter models this year. Um, those are going to be, um, you know, very, very proprietary and, and, uh, a, a collection of very hard worn expertise, you know, uh, to do with like managing distributed GPU clusters, particularly that might be very specific to their setup, right? Like that, uh, that OpenAI has with Microsoft, uh, that Microsoft effectively built an entire data center out in, out in Austin, uh, for OpenAI and, um, Yeah, I mean, like, I'm not sure how much of that you can steal without also stealing the infrastructure.
2: I think in a way, you've seen some of this discussion, well, we did an app podcast, maybe on social media in the same way, but uh, during the the semiconductor boom, you know, with the USSR and Zelenograd and some of that, uh, you can obviously copy a lot of the end product, but it's hard to copy the process that take you to it. And then once you don't have the process, you very quickly fall behind again. So it's like, yeah, if you got the GPT-4 weights, again, like Sean said, the model was trained two years ago. So you're already two years behind once you figured out how to run it, which is not even that easy, you know? So that's really the hard part about it. And software moves so quickly, you know, that in, in a way it's good because, you know, you don't have all the machinery to construct, you know, you don't have all of that. But at the same time, these this is the first time where software has actually been really bound by hardware, probably in the last 20, 30 years. So yeah, even getting, even if you got GPT-4, you probably couldn't serve more than like 50,000 customers. I don't know, 30,000 customers. There's just like not that many GPUs available for you to buy. you know. So that, that's kind the of other, the other part. It's like, yeah, academically, you could maybe run it, but you could not compete with OpenAI because you cannot serve it at the same rate.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's really interesting thinking about the sort of like challenges from an industrial espionage perspective, um, comparing across different industries, right? Because, you know, you've seen a fair amount of success with like, you know, Huawei and routers back in the 90s and 2000s. Um, but, you know, more mixed success when it comes to stuff like jet engines and, and um, uh, you know, aerospace, where there's like, you can you can have the schematics, but there's a lot of tacit knowledge in there, and like building out everything that goes into manufacturing something that's as um uh, as as um uh, specific as something like a um uh, like an engine. So um, it, it's a really interesting contrast between on the one hand, like yeah, it's software you can just download it, um, but also um, you can't just download it because you're training these new models and you have to deploy them uh to 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 be able to end up having the models have any economic utility uh, at the end of the day.
2: I I was going to say, Jordan, one, another way to think about it just in terms of open source and not as maybe similar yet yeah, to like the semi-world where some countries and even China uh, in a way we like, yeah, maybe our play is not to be at the cutting edge of this. It's like to actually have very massive manufacturing and like NAND or like kind of like not as cutting edge um, production. So I think open source is going to go in a similar way where open source is going to be great at doing models in like the, you know, 7, 15, 70 billion parameters range. And they're going to be great models. They're going to be very good for a lot of applications. But is AGI going to be come from like a, a few open source people like working on a model? I find that unlikely, you know? So I, I think you'll see maybe more concentration in the new year of like, okay, let's not actually worry about Getting a GI here. Let's just focus on getting a great model to do code generation, to do uh, summarization, to do all these like smaller tasks.
0: What what is the rationale for a Mistral or a Meta to spend like, I don't know, a hundred billion dollars training something and then just like kind of put it out for free? I mean, is that is that something that can make sense going forward, or um, is the is is sort of the 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 what has been underpinning uh sort of step changes step change increases in in open source something that's like ultimately going to be you know cannibalized by capitalism
2: um i mean meta burns a lot more money doing vr and ar and they don't get a lot out of it so i, I think i think the <laughs> roi on getting Llama was probably much higher especially i guess, especially in terms of like brand you know i would say that kind of helped them um there's obviously, you know, the good old VC subsidized lifestyle that in the United States we first had with rice sharing and food delivery, where like everything was free. I think now the same thing is happening with AI. It's like we have a lot of money flowing into these companies to the train model, do fine tunes, offer very cheap AI inference. At some point, you got to make money, right? There's not endless amount of it. But I think today, one as you said, um, you know, you need talent to do these things too, right? And to get talent, you need to be able to attract it to know that they're going to do good work. So if you have a lot of money and you have a lot of GPUs, you can go to the best people and say, hey, why would you go work at a company that really cannot give you the infrastructure you need to do the work you need to do? Why don't you go work at Meta? Why don't you go work at Together AI? You can work at Mistral or any of these companies. So that's another angle, you know? It's like, it's almost like you know, the the winners keep on winning. It's like, okay, you're already ahead because have more GPUs. Now you also get the best people. And because more people use you, you get more data. And it, it's kind of like a self-fulfilling prophecy in a way. So I think you'll see more of that this year because llama 3 is going to come out at some point. Uh, I'm, I'm sure Mistral is working on something else. OpenAI should release GPT-5, I, I think Sam said soon, which I don't know what that means in his mind, but uh he said you cannot acce- out accelerate me so it must be must be in the short term um so yeah there's there's a lot a lot coming up there there is a little
1: bit of um co-opting by capitalism as you put it um so mistral um only put out their 7b and 8x7b models um but their mistral medium model is effectively closed source uh, just like open is um, and um, in in a way, you can start to see the open source models as free tier marketing for the closed source versions of those open source models. If this Mistral playbook is what's going on uh, for you know some of the other companies as well, like the Perplexity ones. Um, so uh, there's there's some amount of that, which is like you know open source um, can be a recruiting tool, which it is for Meta, or it can be marketing, which it is for Mistral. Um, and there is some incentive to to continue putting things out in open source, um, but it'll obviously become increasingly competitive as the cost of these things go up.
0: Yeah, um, it's an interesting point you made, Alessio, about like the talent wants to work with the GPUs. Um, you know, one of the uh, uh, very dramatic things that sort of my eyes were open to at NeurIPS was just, you know, it's one thing to see the charts, and it's another th- of of the sort of uh, nationality breakdown, and it's another thing to be like, "Oh man, like everyone's speaking Mandarin here, like that's cool." Um, and you know, if come twenty twenty five, twenty twenty six, like Huawei hasn't gotten its shit together, and you, there just aren't a lot of uh, top of the line AI accelerators for you to play with if you work at Baidu or Tencent, then the you know relative trade off of of staying in the US versus taking a uh, uh, you know taking a trip back to China and joining you know, some startup that's raised 500 million dollars or whatever ends up becoming um uh you know it, it ends up being like a, a, i guess another factor um, where um uh, you know where the where the top engineers really end up wanting to um, spend their spend their professional careers yeah
1: i mean i will say there is some draw you know like uh, yi and um quen via alibaba um and Deep Seek um uh, all are I guess very, very well performing, respectable Chinese labs effectively, um, that have secured their GPUs and have secured their reputation as uh research destinations. So like I, I would consider all of them on par uh, with like the, the major US ones.
0: Yeah. So yeah, let's talk about let's talk about those um uh those labs and those models. I've played around a fair amount with them, and like you have come away like just impressed with the performance. Um uh, any any sort of broader take Sean on on what you're seeing out of these companies?
1: Deepseek is surprisingly uh good. Like all of the, like uh, the 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 three that I mentioned are the the I would say the the leading ones. Um, there's you know other attempts that are not as prominent, like Jupu and, and all that. Um, but I, I would say, like, each of them have their own claim as to, like, open source models that have um, stood the test of time, at least in in, in this very short sort of AI cycle um, that everyone else outside of China is still using. You know, like, usually in, in the olden days, the, the the sort of pitch for Chinese models would be like, it does Chinese and English. Um, and <laughs> that would be like the, the main source of differentiation. Uh, but now they're just standing alone as really good coding models really good general uh, language models really good uh, you know f- basis for fine tuning um and i think that's great yeah.
0: what's interesting is like you you've seen a similar dynamic where the established firms have kind of struggled relative to the uh relative to the startups where you know we had a google was like sitting on their ass for a while and the same thing with uh with with baidu uh of just not quite getting to um, where the where the independent labs were. It's interesting um, that
1: Baidu seems to be the Google of China in many ways. Uh, you know, I, I know they hate the, the Google of China comparison, but even Baidu's AI launch was also like kind of uninspired and like not no one no one really like they 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 announced Ernie four point oh. I I see you have this in your notes. And like they're like, trust us, it's better than everyone else, and like no one's be able to verify that.
0: <laughs> uh yeah, it's been been uh... Interesting ride for them, I guess. Betting the house on this, only to be upstaged by like, you know, a handful of startups that's raised like a hundred million dollars. Um, I, I want to come back to the like, what makes OpenAI so special? Thing you guys alluded to, like Anthropic sci- seemingly not being able to capture the magic. You know, what what from a sort of like organizational design perspective has really allowed them to to pop relative to the other labs? Do you guys think?
2: Um, it's always hard to say from the outside because they're so secretive, you know, like uh, uh, Sean and I were at an hackathon at OpenAI maybe a year and a half ago. Um, and you would just, you know, they will host an event in their office. I think today you need like a, you know, DHS and like security clearance to like get into the the OpenAI (laughs) office. So the, the, that it's hard. It's really hard to get a glimpse today into how they work. Uh, also Rune, who's a famous... You know, Twitter and on. He had this tweet as like all the people that OpenAI that make eye contact started working here in the last six months. And so I think that also the the type of people that work at the company have, have changed. Um, I would say they've always they've been early to the space, right? In in relative terms, I would say OpenAI is now I would say five maybe six years old, something like that. Um, a lot of the Labs and other kind of like new companies that start today that just want to do what they do, you kind of get in a way second great talent because a lot of the people that were great, like Ilya and Karpathy and folks like that, they already that are passionate about the mission, they were already there. So going back to kind of like, you know, the talent loop, I was like, oh, I want to go work with Andre Karpathy. I should go work at OpenAI. I want to go work with Sam Alman. I should go work at OpenAI. Um, so that that has been really, really helpful. The other thing, they've done a lot more work trying to draw people in that are not researchers with some of their product launches. I actually don't think they're really great at product on a on an absolute scale compared to like product companies. I would say, you know, the GPTs and the plugin store, they're kind of half-baked, but it inspires people that don't just want to be limited to research to go there. And then that's what then helps them capture more of like the broader mindshare of like product engineers and like AI engineers and they're more in touch with the OpenAI brand because they get to play with it. So I think that has been one thing and for example Claude I don't think many people use Claude but I use Cla- I use Claude API but like I don't really go on the Claude chat. Like there's really not it's just really a simple text box, you know. So like it makes it also hard for exploration. Um so yeah, I would say that's a lot of it. I've had you know, one of my friends uh, left OpenAI recently and uh, he said, so. It, he was like a software engineer and he said Sam Allman called them personally and he was like, he was a fan of his work. I don't think in a lot of companies you have the CEO of probably like the most important AI company in the world, like call you on a Saturday as an individual contributor saying, oh, I really appreciated your work and uh, it's sad to see you go, you know, like, that doesn't happen often, so that kind of gives you a glimpse into like the culture, which is, or if you look at like Greg Brockman on Twitter, it's like he he's just like an hardcore engineer, like it's not somebody that is like just saying buzzword and and whatnot, and that attracts that kind of people. And I think how they got to the best results with GPT four, I don't think it's some secret scientific breakthrough. I think it's more like sound engineering and like a lot of it compounding together. So I think that's what the other labs need to catch up on. It's like they probably have similar PhD level talent, but they might not have the same type of talent to get the infrastructure and the product around it. I, I,
1: there, there have been a few comments from Sam over the years that um, I do keep in mind whenever thinking about the building of OpenAI. Um, he actually had a blog post maybe about two months ago called What I Wish Someone Had Told Me which is probably the closest you'll ever get to an honest, you know, direct reflection from Sam on how he thinks about building OpenAI. Um, and a lot of it is like fighting bureaucracy, um, spending time on recruiting, you know, focusing on outcomes and not um, a process, like, you know, process. And uh, I, I think for me, the the more interesting reflection for Sam on ChatGPT was that um, he realized that you'd Cannot just be a research-only company. You have to be sort of a full-stack research and products company. And I think now with you know his venture into chips, which he has strenuously denied commenting on, um, you know he's going even more full-stack than than most people consider full-stack. And um, I do think like that seems to be working quite a bit in AI, where like um, not fo- not being too narrow in your domain and and being general in terms of like thinking about the entire stack from first principles and what what you need and what needs to happen for first principles and then hiring the people um to to get that going. Um I think it seems to be working for them really well.
0: Yeah. I felt I felt a little bad for Sam. Like those chips act uh, uh applications of clothes. I don't think he'll be able to get in on that gravy train. But it was funny seeing him talk uh being like on the one hand, yeah, I'm gonna raise seven trillion dollars and like, you know, <laughs> chat with Raimundo about it just to get, you know, just to get her take. Um uh, Alessio, I want to come back to one of the things you said about the sort of breakdown between having these, you know, research researchers and the sort of like engineers uh, who are more on the system sides, like doing the actual implementation. And you know, th- there's like a long tradition in uh, in these sorts of labs, types organizations where the type of culture that you want to create in order to make it welcoming and exciting for um, researchers to give up academic careers um, is kind of different from the ones where, you know, you're all about production. And we've heard lots of stories, uh, uh, probably impersonally, as well as reported in the news about the challenges that DeepMind has had in kind of changing modes from this, like, we're just like researching and like doing stuff we think is cool to like, Sundar being like, "Come on, like I'm under the gun here. Everyone wants to fire me. Like, let's let's ship some stuff already." Um, uh, maybe explore a little bit more about the the tension uh, as these organizations have to kind of like walk and chew gum at the same time.
2: I see a lot of this as uh, so. What we do at Decibel, we invest in early stage software infrastructure. So it's usually where the working with the founders to build companies. So i I've, I've seen a lot of how the talent evolves at different stages of it. I mean, I just mentioned this with OpenAI, right? Like OpenAI is not that old. It's only like five, six years old. If you think about Google, you have a lot of like a uh, talent depth in a way you could call it. The same way you think about tech with like tech depth in code, like talent is similar. Where, like When you're trying to like reorganize yourself in a new area, you have a lot of people that were there before that might not be ready for what's next. So if you think about AI Five years ago, yeah, if you think about Alphago, it's like the pinnacle of like AI right? It's kind of like a research project you know you're playing you're playing go against like a person, but there's not really like they're bringing the computers to to the place and they're all sitting there running the algorithm in front of them. It's not like a product versus all of a sudden it's like oh, open AI is like a hundred million users like we need to build Bard and Gemini and like compete with them uh that that's a completely different. Ballpark, you know, to be in. And some people might not want to do it, you know, they might not be built for it. But then again, they're your most senior people because they've been there this whole time, kind of spearheading DeepMind and building their organization. So I think it takes a little bit of time to recalibrate that. And we see that in definitely a lot of our founders are people that were previously large companies and felt like the company could not move themselves in a way that is going to be, you know, on track with the new technology wave um, and end up starting starting a new company. I think what has maybe stopped more of that from happening today is the companies are still doing well, especially OpenAI. I mean, OpenAI is like an amazing business. I don't really see a lot of founders leaving OpenAI to start something new because I think the consensus within the company is that they are by far the best, that by far the best model, that by far the best access to capital and GPUs and they are the best people. So there's not, you know, leaving OpenAI and say, I'm gonna start a company and like dethrone them, it's kinda crazy, you know? So I think you see maybe more of that in vertical applications where people say, OpenAI wants to be, I I use this analogy of like, synchronous versus asynchronous AI. Like, OpenAI is like very synchronous. It's like you go on ChatGPT and it's kinda like one-on-one, you use their chat completion API, you do one-on-one, and then there's the whole asynchronous part, which is AI agents. It's um, copilots that kind of work for you in the background, things like that. That is not really in the OpenAI DNA so far in product. So you see company, you see people leaving to start uh, those kind of companies. But um, yeah, outside of that, it's kind of hard. To convince founders to leave, we tried. We tried. We had, we had some ideas that we wanted people to leave those companies and start. And it's really hard to get them get them out of it. Um, but I'm curious to see how OpenAI, in the next two, three, four years, changes. You know, because it will change by just by nature of the work that they're doing. Um, and maybe more more OpenAI founders will will pop up.
0: Um, so you know, part of the uh the the reason you keep <laughs> the, uh you, you know you, you try to keep your brilliant phds happy is to is to you know be the first to find and exploit uh, architecture architectural advancements uh, Sean, you teased this earlier um what are what are some of the like different ways of approaching these models um that you're um particularly excited about and what are the kind of like knock on effects for demand for different types of compute or or or, or data that um, they could potentially unlock
1: Oh, that's a really interesting question. Um, yeah, so I happen to be working on a summary post about this, which is why it's very top of mind. Um, this is a non-exhaustive list, but I will just mention the top things which I expect to see progress on this year. Um, so the the very top is unfortunately I have to mention Q star, um, which is uh, something that is kind of a twit- uh, a meme online because it was obliquely referenced by Mira Miradi in like an internal all hands. And then the, the YouTube content creator industrial complex uh, blew it up to you know all sorts of proportions. Uh, but I do believe that um, search is going to be a big frontier of research that effectively none of the open source people are pursuing and basically only, Jeep, only OpenAI and DeepMind are pursuing it. Um, and so, so, so what, what search means is um, intuitively for your audience um, is that... Models should take more time to think about harder problems than easy problems, right? So uh, right now, because the way that language models work is they just predict token by token by token, um, it it takes exactly the same amount of time to tell you the answer of what is one plus one as it does, um, you know, solve the Riemann hypothesis. And um, ideally, you should be able to give your uh, model a budget of how long it has to think. Um, You know, if 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 you have... Uh, A longer time to think, you can do more chain of thought. You you can do more search and research, and you can do more code prototyping and testing of that code. Um, You can do all you can do all sorts of stuff, and and, you know, and self introspection before arriving at an answer. So, um, this this comes to the question of like, okay, instead of optimizing models to respond to you as quickly as possible, what if you just gave them a day, a year, ten years? Um, what can they come up with? Uh, and the the classic uh, you know finding that uh, I wrote about this in, on on the Latent space blog is that um for every i guess unit of time that you give it um, to to think you know uh, in terms of extra time to infer, um that's roughly equivalent to ten thousand units of that in pre-training. Um so that is really interesting in terms of just. Uh, the flexibility of models, the, the size of models that you can deploy, and the general capability towards AGI. Um, and so whatever QSTAR is, whatever you know, people start landing on as, as like the, sort of the real-time search component of LLMs, um, we don't know what it looks like today because no one actually has a working prototype yet. But um, if they manage to get it working, which is you know, highly likely given that they've hired everyone um, you know, prominent in that field... Um, then, yeah. then that will so, be that will be 5
0: Great. So, so let's sort of as we go through these, let's also talk about them from a sort of compute greediness and ultimately like a oh, yeah. you know, compute a, a compute greediness, a data greediness, and a you know to what it, you know just how hard would it be to fast follow from a Chinese lab perspective context. So on those Fantastic. three components, like what are we t- what are we thinking about when it comes to uh, fancier uh, search?
1: Yeah, so real-time search. Uh, by the way, search, I'm using search in the computer scientist uh, terminology, not the consumer internet, uh, you know, like google.com search. Um, search is more real-time search in terms of like, I have 10 paths, and, and each of those 10 branch into more, 10 more paths. So uh, for me to, to search all the 100 branches of, of all these paths, that, that is a search algorithm in terms of this sort of machine learning and um, AI a- a aspect. Um, so, yeah, in terms of data greediness, not very greedy because all you need is reasoning capability, but you do need planning capability and planning data sets are very sparse and, and far, few and far between. Um, they, they, I have seen quite a few advancements, uh, particularly in Europe's, um, where people have improved the planning resources. And I think um, synthetic data is, is actually coming in very um, strongly here. Um, I refer people to the Alpha Geometry paper from DeepMind that was published like a month ago, um, where they effectively had like 100 step planning stages for doing mathematical proofs at the Olympiad level, um, and that's that's really solid planning. I mean, you know, that that's something, that's something that you know you you're, you have to be in like the top percentile, the top percentile in, in sort of human capability to do. Um, so I think uh, data data wise, you just need like really good planning data, and and uh, you know, not a ton else. Uh, additional from, from what we have here. Compute-wise, it's going to be a monster in terms consu- of consu- compute consumption because, you know, what what does it mean to run an LLM for, like, a year? <laughs> you know, and that's going to cost you um, a few tens and hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, and then finally, in terms of fast following, if the details are secret, um, it's going to take a while, you know. The same, same deal as what GPT-4 is now versus all the other LLMs. Um, you know, it's been two years and uh, no one's really successfully copied it um so i I think uh if the details are obvious and publicized then yes but um you know in the short term probably they will not be fast followed in the in the fullness of time like you know give it on if you zoom out in in the grand scheme of humanity you're really trying to evaluate things in terms of fast follow in terms of like a one to two year time frame when really like actually a 10 to 20 year time frame is also still pretty fast um so like i would just say like maybe step back if if you're if you're more of the, the sort of philosophical bent and if you're more of like a competitive bent and maybe you, you have to zoom in a little bit closer, yeah. but um, that'll be my quick take on just the, the the real-time search element.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a, you're, you're, you're jumping ahead of my questions because I, I do think like, if you're thinking about like long-term, okay, to what extent will AI be able to unlock productivity growth in this economy over a, 10 to 20 year horizon. Like it doesn't really matter if it takes like 1 or 3 or, you know, 5 years to figure out just how Q-star works, but the sort of big question I guess is like if you actually need foreign GPUs regardless of how nice your model is in order to be able to like have the smart one that can actually, you know, uh, uh sort of increase productivity in your factory or your services company or or, or what have you? Then you start to get that kind of like differential impact of what AI can do for your economy over time, as opposed to just like having the time series be like lagged by um uh, lagged by a few uh, years while engineers across the Pacific just you know figure out what it is that you um uh, came up with from a algorithmic innovation perspective.
1: Yeah, I got uh, you. Uh, I'll, you know, I'll I have, I'll, I'll leave uh, leave it to Alessio to mention that, but like I, I think one thing that where we're a little bit more um sanguine about this sort of foreign gpu gpu band thing is that i don't think compute is like at the limit that specialized um if you just need a lot ton more compute uh, i think there's a chinese phrase which i, I don't know how, how often chinese is spoken in china talk podcast but uh, uh, chong shu. <laughs> chong shu. so like you know using using like a lot of poorer gpus uh can make up for like really like you know a few fewer really good GPUs like so quantity can 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 make up for quality um, in some in some respects and we are talking to like together AI we're talking to uh, MLC we're talking to modular there's this any amount of engineering focused on running uh, compute and even training workloads on uh, heterogeneous compute like non-NVIDIA compute Um, I don't know if Alessio would agree with that because we haven't actually Mm -hmm. discussed this
2: um. Yeah, I, I think there are a lot of things there. So if you think about GPU alternatives and how sometimes the hardware development has been separated by the software development, you had like Cerebras come out with their own chips and they were like, oh, let's just put a massive amount of SRAM on chip. And there's they put like, I think like 40 gigabytes is like the max. They were like, A model is probably never going to be bigger than 40 gigabytes, so you can always fit it on it. But then now the largest models are like, you know, 3.5 terabytes of, of VRAM you would need to run them. So all of a sudden, you've done all this work trying to improve the hardware, you know, and like it's kind of been a waste because the software was going a different way. And I think like, especially with a China lens, if you think about the GPU ban, the big question is like, how do we try and make work with what we get access to, you know? And like Sean said, maybe just like, you know, it's gonna be less efficient, but like you do it at a larger scale. Or do you take the gamble of saying, oh, we're gonna build our own accel- uh, you know, acceleration platform that might be different than what NVIDIA is building and then hope that the best research in, in the world is like going in the same direction. I, I think the US doesn't really have that because NVIDIA works closely with OpenAI, like, you know, Microsoft and OpenAI work closely together to build the data centers once you have the GPUs. So there's more cohesion between hardware and software. But I think once you get cut out of the hardware pipeline, all of a sudden you have to decide, okay, are we just, again, being fast followers and using the same architecture? Are we going to try and build a different architecture maybe for our own needs? Um, it's really hard. That That's above my pay grade, but that's kind of how... <laughs> I would I would think about it and maybe you know I know there was a lot of um a lot of discussion about the Huawei like a seven uh, nanometers um like work that they've done recently so obviously there's a lot of latent manufacturing capability you know in in China um, but yeah I, I'll find out on your newsletter you know you're definitely not gonna find out about that on latent space it's gonna be on on China Week, <laughs> t- China talk
0: well. Uh, No, it's interesting you frame it in that way, Alessio, because earlier in this conversation, you were like, look, you know, these open source GPU pores they're fucking around. But like at the end of the day, we're we're not going to count on them for big innovations because they're just constrained by uh, the amount of capital that they have. But like, look, if you have like an entire nation of some of the best engineers in the world who are the ones exploring these different sort of more compact uh, models or what have you. Um, it's, it's the, the range of outcomes I think is a lot wider than just like people who aren't good enough to get jobs or, you know, are just too weird to get jobs at Google and at DeepMinder or, or OpenAI kind of messing around with, um, you know, some, some money from, uh, from, a from a, you know, series A or what have you. Um, and, uh, I guess we'll have to see, but maybe this is a good transition back to, to Sean and his, um, uh, you know, uh, model innovation tier list. Um, uh, what do we, what do we oh, have yeah, after, yeah. uh. After Q star,
1: yeah, um, I'll just quick quickly mention, that, you know, there's always, you know, the the the, the there's, just, there's just diplomatically call it the Taiwan option, and then also, <laughs> uh, there, uh, uh, I think I think at the at the limit for like for Chinese AI, like you can leave things to private industry for so long, but at the end of the day, the government has to like want this, if for it to happen, and I don't feel like they want it enough. Um, so like, I'll put that there, like, you know, this is not going to happen, um, at a, at a massive scale in, in, in a, in a way that China needs it to, unless China, China's, the Chinese government wants it. Um, and so, you know, I'll, I'll leave that sorry. there. And, and,
0: um, and, 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 sorry. And by this, you mean, like, uh, the, the a, frontier a AI sl-
1: movement. Yeah.
0: Gotcha. So what's uh, your, so what's leading, your sense leading labs? Of, yeah. And, and what's your sense of, why, why is your take that the appetite for, for this particular um, push, isn't isn't quite extant yet.
1: Um, I think LLMs are uh, fundamentally a little bit heretical. the The fact that you can generate your own truth, um, and and Ch- the Chinese government may not be happy with that. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> um, um, so so yeah, I mean, this 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 might get into more political discussions than, than we can afford. Uh, and and no, I'm definitely not an expert, but we like could do this,
0: yeah. we could do this on my. This is not your show. We could do it on my show. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, okay. <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, it's 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 interesting because on the one hand, like you know, AI has with all of you know with semiconductors and EV and solar, like been every been in like every Chinese government tech document since 2015. Um, and I think the sort of the AI pre uh, GPT three was very much something that the Chinese government was comfortable with and excited about where you're talking about like applications in robotics and computer vision and, you know, automated driving and all that stuff, I think is like very much in line with what today's CCP is excited to prioritize. But um, you're right. And in a sense, Sean, like th- there isn't a lot threatening about uh, companies like Hikvision and Hisense um, from a from a Beijing oriented perspective. But um you know there's just a lot of weirdness and a lot of uncertainty that a uh you know a gpt-5 or a gpt-6 level model could potentially unlock and on the one hand china like every developing country or every country in the world is looking for new sources of growth um but this is one that i think is like just a lot weirder than the more traditional manufacturing which has been um the sort of thing that the that um, you know the modern CCP has been really excited to um, put their put their weight behind. So um, you know LLMs and generative AI, it's not as like evil as like platform tech companies that have gotten this like enormous beating in the tech lash over the past five years with um, uh, you know DD and 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 Pinduoduo and even ByteDance like just like having to like deal with a lot of crap because they're not doing enough to like promote national rejuvenation or what have you. But, um, you know, you saw a little bit of it um, right as Chat GPT launched of some some um, uh, you know senior politicians saying, like, we need a Chinese competitor or what have you. Um, but there hasn't really been nearly as much focus on that, maybe just because there's enough else going on with the economy um, that it's kind of hard to uh, focus on 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 this in particular, or maybe they're sort of stressed out about um, the GPU ban, and there's like enough sort of chip stuff to to get on people's mind, but it has been striking to me how, you know, while the rest of the world is, and a lot of like Chinese domestic media is still very much, is still very focused on, um, you know, what's coming out of deep and OpenAI and how important this is. And like, you know, chat GPT uh, tutorials, like going viral um, on Billy Billy or whatever. But um, the sort of government level support that you've seen over this, for the semiconductor industry over the past um. Uh, 10 years with, you know, tens, hundreds of billions of dollars being poured in this way than that, like has not really materialized um, when it comes to uh, these AI labs that are going to be the ones trying to do the um, frontier pushing or, or fast following um, uh, from, a, from a model generation and deployment perspective. Um, <laughs> Anyways, those are my good. takes. Uh, Sean, back good. to you. Yes. Uh, what's some crazy yes. model shit? We should be excited. Okay,
1: about. yeah. So two two more. I'll, nice. I'll mention. Uh, one is yeah. Take the time. No One is um one is mixture of experts, and I really love highlighting this one because it's something where um the Chinese models actually took a step ahead of all the Western models, um and so I love this because you know that means that Chinese China actually has innovation that is that is spreading the other way. Um and and that's 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 really awesome to see. And you also have uh you know, uh and, and innovations in like the embedding models that we can talk about. Uh but the mixture of experts are a really fundamental innovation shift. I, I, I sorry, like inference shift. You know, you asked me about the uh data com- data efficiency versus the compute efficiency versus the fast follow. Um so maybe I'll I'll quickly mention what a mixture of experts is. So in- instead of one dense model, um, which is uh, it's likely to be the 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 kind of the kind of model that GPT three was, um, gt four and above, as well as um, DeepSeek MoE and Mistral from from the Mistral um, uh, uh, folks, uh, are all mixture of, mixtures of expert models where you combine something like eight to thirty two or sixty four experts um, um, in 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 answering. Uh, a model, in answering a specific question that comes in. So you, you send in a question, and instead of it uh, querying one model, it actually has a routing layer that, that smartly routes it to a model that is best suited to answer it, except that it doesn't work the same way that it would for a human group of experts. So you, uh, you know a, a typical collection of humans, you would have them specialize in a particular domain. You're the finance person, you're the medicine person, you're the law person. Um, the, the sort of machine learning mixture of experts don't work like that because they, they never work like humans learn. Um, and they tend to specialize in very unique um, uh, differences in like, the, the, the tokens that are being predicted. And the, mix, the mixtures are uh, routed based on a, on a token level. Anyway, so I'll just, I'll just like leave that there as, as breadcrumbs in case people want to follow up. But the, the long, long and short of it is that in terms of data training-wise... It, it you're going to just try to consume as much data as possible, but it is surprisingly efficient for the same amount of parameters in total that is being trained. Um, so I would say like it's like mediumly data efficient, um, but you're still going to just throw as much data as you can, you can at it, um, you know, just to give people a, an idea of boundaries um, that the top models are being trained between 1 trillion to 2.5 trillion tokens Right now um and you know there's a case to go up to 30 trillion if you really want to broaden your your scope but no one wants to really take that risk because the quality of the data goes down as you increase your your net um in terms of compute efficiency this is the most interesting one because it's a sparse model um, you actually have less active parameters because um, even though let's say you you have eight measures of eight experts in your in your moe model um, only let's say two to three of them are active at any one given time. Therefore, uh, you're actually just doing less matrix multiplications all around. Therefore, um you're actually using less compute at the at the time. Uh, that uh, um, and the the nuance to that is that you still have to have all the model weights loaded in memory. So you still need very, very a lot of uh, RAM in your GPUs. Um, and, and potentially, you know, like one GPU, one, uh, one GPU per expert, uh, depending on the size of your experts um, and, and all the related networking that requires to, to get that going. Um, and then finally, the fast follow. Um, I mean, this is the fastest, fastest follow there is. Like uh, you can slap an MOE uh, on top of any um, pre-trained model out there. And have the paper out in like five days, which is exactly what happened to MoE Mamba with, with the Mamba paper that came out from Together AI. Um, so all that is is sort of my quick answer. And then I I'll I single out in particular DeepSeek, um, which is a, is a related to a link to a Chinese hedge fund, um, DeepSeek AI, as a leader in, in in MoE models because they actually popularized this idea that you should have much smaller experts than people have been using. Um, so typically, um, like Mixtrao used like a 7B um, expert model, like 7 billion parameter expert model. Um, they, they, sh- they shrink it down to a, a lot smaller, to like 1 to 2B. Um, and uh, also innovated in this concept that they should have a shared expert, like an, an expert that is active at all times. And DeepSeek MOE is, um, I, I would say, currently the the leading sort of MOE model architecture out there. Um, so that's interesting. That's a, that's a nice win for the Chinese uh, model labs. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. Like, okay, um, maybe I spent all this time talking about architecture and like model requirements. But like, uh, I will say like, basically, it's a free, like 10 percentage point improvement in all your evals. If you just make like a mixture of experts thing on top of a regular pre-trained model. So in terms of like AI progress, it's like a pretty cheap win. Um it's it, I classify it as more incremental because like uh everyone knows how to do it now. And like it's it's not that, you know, it's it's not that rocket science-y, but um it it's it's notable because like it, it's uh it seems like a an a pure win on top of uh, any of the pre-trained models. So it's notable for that reason.
0: Awesome. Um why don't you why don't you pick one more? Let's do one more.
1: Yeah, the third one is the weirdest one. Um this one is um uh, let's just call it like model merging uh model grafting is also it's also been called um this one um i've seen less out of the chinese models but um you know it's it's very very prevalent in the open source world Um, and this is the practice of instead of make instead of having a routing layer for you you know mixing a bunch of experts um you literally like basically average the weights of equivalent size models um, so literally, like you know, if one of them is has a weight of zero point five and the other has a weight of minus zero point five, the simple average would be like zero um because you're like the midpoint between them um, and you know so on and so forth um, the, the, the what I gave you is a very simple um, concept of what an average weight is, but literally it's like th- that's that's what people are doing and finding really interesting results um so people are combining like let's say four different 7 billion parameter models into one 7 billion parameter model um and uh just by just by averaging their weights <laughs> and finding that their their you know the the results of combining all these models are better sometimes than all the constituent models they can they can often reserve preserve the domain capabilities of some of the models that are that have been absorbed um and then sometimes there's like different ways of combining. So I I, I just told you about like the, the simple linear interpol, interpolation models. Um, but like there are other ways of merging where you have sort of unequal merges that uh, that create like really, really monster models. So like some some people have created like, you know, 150 billion parameter models from like two, like 60, 60 billion parameter models and, and stuff like that. Um, all of which is like kind of hacky and weird and like it's, a, it's surprising that it works and people don't really understand like why it works apart from the fact that it's a form of regularization that, that seems to generalize really well um so it basically helps you to avoid overfitting to your to your own data because you're merging a bunch of models together um and, and it's it's also made me notable in the fact that like it's mostly done by like independent open source people and later adopted by people at DeepMind. Uh, we don't have any evidence that OpenAI has adopted it because they haven't published anything. But DeepMind has, and DeepMind has come out and said, "Yeah, like we 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 like this model merging phenomenon, uh, and we're starting to train models that way too." Um, and so that's an interesting and unusual or rare con- um, situation when the open source innovation is actually trickling back into the closed cool source labs, which is usually the other
0: way around. Uh, and let's let's do our three cuts. Oh my God!
1: Yeah, yeah. So. Uh, Data, nothing. Compute, nothing. Uh, fast follow, very fast.
0: <laughs> awesome.
1: You don't need a GPU to merge models because you're literally adding weights. Uh,
0: it's, it
1: cannot be dumber. It's really surprising. You, you, you actually, you just, need, you just need GPUs to run inference so you can do evals, so you can see how good uh, the merges are. But beyond that, that's about it. Uh,
0: and, w- and, what, and And what's our sort of... Uh, percentage boost for this one, and then uh, I don't know. Why don't you? Oh
1: my god! Yeah, yeah. So uh, data, nothing. Compute, nothing. Uh, fast follow, very fast. <laughs>
0: uh, awesome. Like
1: you don't need you don't need a GPU to merge models because you're literally adding weights. Uh, it <laughs> cannot be dumber. It's really surprising. You, you, you actually you just need, you just need GPUs to run inference so you can do evals so you can see how good. Uh, the merges are. But beyond that, that's about it. Um, you don't need extra wh- data. What- you just take the existing pre-trained models.
0: And, and what's our sort of uh, percentage boost for this one? And then, uh, Pretty good. I don't know, why don't you? Yeah.
1: Okay. Percentage boost, uh, it's, it's smaller than a mixture of, mixture of expert boosts, um, you know, like single, maybe single digit percentages uh, right now. Yeah. Um, but still, like that's enough. When you, when, you, when you combine a bunch of top models together, you get an even more top model. Uh, and that, like a, a lot of the, the 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 top models on the open source leaderboards, are now merges, um, which is very strange and very weird. Um, and it's interesting to think about that, contrasting that versus the mixture of experts thing, which is much more of a traditional machine learning approach where you learn a routing layer towards different experts. You can kind of get that. Whereas this whole thing about merging models blindly, or like with some arbitrary strategy, there there's, there's, a, there's a there's a few strategies, by the way. Um, if people are interested, you can Google merge kit and you can see all the strategies there. Um, yeah. But yeah, like uh, this is very cutting edge, very, and very uncertain, but uh, it seems that it's being validated at the big labs um, that DeepMind is adopting it. And uh, presumably all the others are as well um, that it's, it's working.
2: Awesome.
0: You know, let's, let's go from the, the sort of frontier model uh, discussion a little more towards AI engineering. Um, you know, what is this field? Why is it so interesting? Um, and, you know, what implications does it have for um, the sort of trajectory of this technology diffusing out into into the broader economy?
1: I was mostly inspired by the conversations that we we're having as part of Latent Space, that uh, people were coming in and saying like, okay, like, you know, I'm a believer in AI and I want to, um, you know, make my career in it. What should I do? Um, and I distinctly remember this conversation I had with uh, someone at a, an event that we hosted where she was like I, I can do uh, you know I love AI like I, I'm I'm spending all my time on it but I cannot code and I realized like there's just a fundamental difference between people who can code and utilize AI and people who are just downstream of AI products there is an enormous amount of power that is uh, capable of being wielded be- if, by people who can code and I'm not just talking about prompt engineering like when you can when you can construct prompts programmatically and do retrieval augmented generation, um, you're able to create so much more powerful systems than the people who um, have to use the consumer grade uh, AI applications out there. So that's like one element of, in terms of like just the sheer amount of uh, disparate power. I kind of wanted to draw attention to to that, like that uh, it is not AI, it is not prompt engineer, it is AI engineer. Um, and it is not AI enthusiast, it is AI engineer, like person who writes code, um, people who, person who works on production systems. Um, so that's, that's one element of that. The second element I, I realized is that the rise of the closed API labs and the, the rise and the success of foundation models mean that instead of a paradigm where each company used to have to build its own ML team in-house, you can actually kind of buy it off the shelf or rent it off the shelf from the large model labs uh, or the open source host, uh, hosting services, what, it doesn't matter. Um, and then take it from there to build something interesting as an AI engineer. Therefore, there's a whole generation of ML researchers, user research scientists, ML engineers, data scientists that you used to have to hire to build AI-enabled applications that you don't really need to start. That you can just take someone who is a regular engineer who is familiar with all the AI tooling and get going just from there. And that's a huge simplification. That's a huge cost saving. That's a huge increase in, t- in, in the ability to ship quickly. And um, I wanted to call that out as a, as a trend. So I called it the AI engineer.
2: I think the, the rise of the AI engineer most interesting piece is all of a sudden companies that couldn't attract talent can have talent that is enabled by other people's work. So, If you think about, you know, ML five years ago, I talked to a lot of companies that were trying to sell like ops tools, just like experiment observability, all these things. But most companies are like, ML people don't want to come work here. You know, like the work is not that interesting, you know? So you kind of had a whole lot of companies that could actually use AI for a lot of use cases and like increasing productivity, getting better product, better gross margins. But they just could not get the people to go work there to apply it to their problem and problem space. Versus now you have the best people clustering at OpenAI, Anthropic, DeepMind, whatever. Then they opened the models and now you have the person working on software for lawyers, like leveraging AI to make software for lawyers. That the best, uh, Andrew Karpati would not start a company to sell software to lawyers, I'm sure. But now, uh, you know, you have AI engineers that are, you know, like like Sean said, they're not PhDs, but they're people that are interested in building great product and great software, and they work at companies that have a very specific use case for the technology. And all of a sudden, you can do that. Um, so that that has been, from my vantage point, the most interesting thing. You know, we have a very big community of enterprise early adopters. These are Fortune 500 companies building all sort of stuff. A lot of them are not software companies at all, you know? But now they can use uh, ChatGPT, they can use the GPT APIs to build a lot more productivity into their organization, where before you could have never built like a natural language team that would have been capable of building this stuff. So uh, that's super exciting. That's obviously scary for startups in a way, because all of a sudden, you know, even the large companies get all of this for free. Uh, and now you have to differentiate on, on different angles. Um, but I think it's great at the end of the day for for the end consumer. What, what we still haven't figured out is does the value accrue to the company or does it just accrue to the consumer? Um, that's something that um, Charlie Munger always makes this example with uh, textile uh, machinery. Like the more efficient the textile process has gotten, the more prices have gone down, but the companies have not made a single cent more basically off of that. Um, I'm curious to see if an AI it's gonna be the same where everything is gonna be, you know, super easy and cheap for consumers, but like the enterprises actually don't capture a lot of that. It's just passed through. But it's still too too early to tell.
1: Gotcha.
0: Um any any closing thoughts, Sean? Uh maybe going out you know, building off of this to our sort of 10, 20 year horizon of what all this stuff can enable? Want to, you know, take what we talked about today and, and you know, add add that lens to it?
1: Ten twenty 20 years, everything will be, you know, all, all this AI is like here, but it's not evenly distributed. We'll have figured out how to evenly distribute it. Um, I think the biggest change that isn't really a thing right now, but will be a thing is on-device AI, um, particularly on your phones. Um, and uh, let's say within your own personal machines. Being able to plug that in into, you know, something that's yours, that's private, uh, that's dare I say small, um, that, you know, only serves intelligent needs for, for your purposes. Um, I think that is going to happen. Um I, in you know, it, it it will be hard to monetize because if effectively you have to be Apple or Samsung or whatever or, you know, one of the hardware manufacturers. Um but uh I I, I think like, that is something that everybody wants. Nobody really wants to call out to, like, an open AI and, like, send all your personal private data uh, there. Um, everyone's only doing it just because you have, like, you, you know, they, they, have, they currently have the top models. But the moment that, you know, we have reached some kind of, you know, generally intelligent future where, like, if all the open source models are, like, good enough and, like, we, we can actually put them towards uh, use for, for, you know, all our personal needs then there's absolutely no, no way but local and private models uh, for your personal needs. And I think, uh, and, and that's going to apply to businesses as well, right? Like the B2B needs are just an amplification of personal needs. Yeah.
0: And I think sort of that vision of the future is one that a lot of maybe my audience in Washington hasn't quite internalized is like, if from everything we've talked about and everything I've learned from you guys over the course of listening to your show, it seems like over a long enough time horizon, it's like th- there's a pretty decent chance that you're not going to end up in a world in which these secrets, you know, these can g- be kept like secrets. Um, you know, the, the sort of what it takes to build a really um, a really cutting edge model. And even if, you know, there is some sort of like fast following that goes along, um, we're, we're much, we're, we're, you know, as likely to see this as a sort of, Um, you know, electricity-type innovation as, like, a nuclear bomb that only a few countries have and, like, the rest can't, can't access. And trying to sort of conceptualize what the broader, you know, economic and geopolitical implications of artificial intelligence are if, like, everyone can kind of, like, have the basic ingredients to deploy this stuff as opposed to it right now being this very sort of securitized, like, let's just, like, keep these secrets and, like, you know put as many, you know, locks and keys around OpenAI as possible and hope that they, you know, keep keep chugging along um, is a really important frame to think about this if you're if you're looking at it from, you know, something beyond, um, you know, three to five years.
2: And I think in the short term, it, I think it was March 2023, we're in the Future of Life Institute that like the stop all AI development for six months later. It's like now 12 months have passed. I mean, <laughs> you know like are we that much further along it just feels like sometimes it's when it's a new technology people that were not a part of the creation of it feel like it's all of a sudden it's here you know but like it will take yeah 10 20 years is like i think a better time frame to like really make these predictions and like plan accordingly versus like oh any moment now it could happen but it doesn't doesn't really work that way you know so um We'll see. We'll see. I mean, the, when we started the podcast, uh, we were actually, you know, we wanted to only do AI engineering and we wanted to do it weekly. And we're like, you know, maybe we'll run out of things to talk about like and, and soon. <laughs> and I think we've now done, you know, 55 episodes, something like that. Uh, we have a lot more scheduled and we have a, a lot more things we haven't even covered. You know, so there's, there's just like a ton of work happening. And when you have so much entropy, you know, in like a system, it's hard to predict the outcome, you know, yeah. but I I think the entropy is good. Without the entropy, you're just kind of like staying where you were before and that's never, that's never how technology has helped humanity, so.
0: Maybe one more question for you guys. Um, there's been some talk in Washington about this idea of uh, algorithmic export controls. Um, thoughts, questions, comments on, uh, you know, that as a, as like a like a feasible way to to, to think about uh, you know con- controlling the trajectory of this technology
2: uh, it's really hard i i think we already struggle so much in open source software with figuring out how to actually enforce stuff like the gpl license which theoretically means if you use you know if you use any code under gpl license you have to open source everything you do obviously when you read gpl code you're going to learn the patterns and you're going to learn how things are built and then you're going to reimplement it. And it's like, well, it's not really that, you know, but I learned it from it. So I I think like it will be hard. You would need to force everybody working on this to not talk about it publicly. And I think you cannot really do that outside of like a, a government setting, you know? Like I don't think there's been in the history of technology, like a technology company that we didn't end up figuring out how they were doing a certain thing, you know, and then we talked the at length about how even if you had the GPT-4 weights, how hard it would be to actually do it. um But I think it's hard to enforce, yeah, algorithmic exports in a way that doesn't hurt you internally. Again, I'm not, I, I'm a technologist and an engineer, I'm not a policy expert, you know. But for me, it's kind of like once you make a hard for people to build and to explore, you're maybe hurting yourself more than you're hurting the other party. You know, um,
1: uh, yeah. Uh, so I I think op- the open source movement um, is probably going to be more powerful. <laughs> this is like a kind of like banning torrents. You know, like it's just it just can't work unless you want to like change the fundamental communication structure of the internet. Um, so like uh, maybe a surprising or non consensus take, but like I think the 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 rules are like the Biden White House um, administration's rules on like requiring notification for large training runs for like uh, I think 10e26 is is like the the barrier. Uh, So let's say GPT five is right now 10e25 in terms of like the number of flops that it takes to train GPT uh, GPT four and five. So something something that is like next level, truly next level. um, It is you know by executive order required uh, to be you're supposed to notify. Uh, the powers that be, and uh, I think that's probably a good, you know, rough benchmark. Like, yes, you can quibble a lot with like the efficiency of flops, and and people are saving a lot of efficiency of flops uh, by using the strategies that we talked about. Right? You know, like moving from training to inference uh, using real time search and and Q star, uh, the thing you just legislated as having a limit no, now no longer applies, right? Like, uh, exactly. <laughs> you know, like so so it is it is a very holy. It's full of holes, like this, 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 this concept. Um, but let's just say, like, yes, pre-training, having a large pre-trained stage is still going to matter and more powerful AI is going to come with more scale. Um, then, like, that actually is a pretty good uh, restriction or, or limitation in um, something where if you're worried about safety or national defense, um, you should just keep watch on that and keep uh, tabs on the distribution of GPUs just like you would uh, distribution of nuclear material. Um, I have one, I have one um, benchmark or metric that uh, I would like to leave your, your audience with, actually, that uh, I worked out a while ago and it's, it's pretty fun to think about for like the 10 year horizon. Right. So, um, a rough rule of thumb is that compute um, roughly 100 X's, like goes up by two orders of magnitude, uh, every GPT version. So, GPT 3 took about a person year of compute, according to George Hotz. Um, And so that was about um, 1,000 A100s for 34 days. Um, GPT-4 was 25,000 A100s for 90 days. And that's about 96% years of compute, or in other words, 100% years of compute. So GPT-4 is 100 times the amount of compute that GPT-3 was. Um, And you can kind of extrapolate that, right? So if you can kind of equate that to like GPT-3 is one year year of compute. GPT-4 is one lifetime of compute, like one person's lifetime. GPT-5 is 100%, 100 lifetimes. GPT-6 is 10,000. Dot, dot, dot. If you get to GPT-9 in the same scale, if this, if this is like the new Moore's law of scaling, um, that's 10 billion lifetimes for GPT-9. And GPT-10 is 1 trillion lifetimes. Um, so roughly GPT-9.5... So, so GPT-9 is every human that's alive today. That's the order of magnitude that, that, that of intelligence that it will, it will command. And GPT-9.5 will be every... Human has ever lived, which is roughly one hundred billion humans, um, and like it puts things in perspective. We don't have that anywhere near that amount of compute today, and I, I don't know if we'll ever get there. Um, but if you take scaling seriously, and if you take the trends that we have had up to date seriously, uh, this is where we end up in ten years.
0: Um, and, and sorry, th- by this is what we end up with ten years is is how it. it... Is how hungry, how hungry they are, or how it's both how hungry they are and how smart they are.
1: Yeah, how smart they are. How much, how much evolution will have happened to these things in the span of 10 years that it took us maybe 100,000 years to evolve.
2: Gotcha.
0: Well, um, maybe, maybe we will only have to wait for GPT-7 in order for it to create a China Talk uh, custom outro music for all of you guys um uh sean alessio this was such a pleasure thank you so much for um uh for teaching me some stuff and uh would love to have you back sometime soon
2: thank you jordan this was fun